And today, I'm going to uh, address something that somebody asked me to address quite some time ago. Uh, I wasn't the first person to do it, um, but it is, it is a very interesting topic, um, or I would say even an issue, uh, at least to a small degree, uh, for some people, their understanding of it. And uh, so we're going to look at that today. However, I'm not going to tell you what that is. Not for a little while. We're going to get halfway through uh, today's message before I actually share with you what that is. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to frame it. I want to set the stage. I want to set this framework up so that some of the things that I'm going to say, some of the things I'm going to throw at you, uh, you're going to have a better way to um, understand those things, to, w- to download them. And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin today by looking at the 23rd chapter of Matthew. Very, very powerful chapter. You know, one of the things that's so beautiful is uh, about the New Testament is we've gone there, and primarily the Gospels. When we go to the Gospels, what do we see? We see Yeshua's ministry. We see Yeshua interacting with the people. It's awesome. We get to behold awesome things. We witness miracles. One of the things we witness is Yeshua's speech, his words, the words that Yeshua speaks to the people. They are awesome. When you go to Matthew 7 and you look at this, they were dumbfounded when he opened his mouth because he spoke with authority and with power. This was the king of Jews. This was the king of Israel. When he spoke, he did not speak like the rabbis. He was different. There was no one like him. Ever. No one ever spoke like him. You get into John chapter 6, and he says, Yeshua says to his disciples, he's looking at his disciples, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. They're life. And then he looks at them, and he says, but some of you do not believe. And it's interesting, what's the next thing that happens? Then we're told that some of his, many, it actually says many of his disciples turned away from him and walked with him no more. And then Yeshua looks at Simon Peter and says, do you also want to go away, Peter? And Peter's response is, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter saw it. He knew it. When he heard Yeshua open his mouth, that is life. His soul resonated with the words that Yeshua spoke. Flip the page. Go to John chapter 7. The chief priests, the Pharisees, they send men out to go arrest Yeshua. To take him into custody. These men get there and then they hear Yeshua speaking. And it was so powerful, they turned around. They went back home. And they said, why have you not brought him? Because no man ever spoke like this man. Nothing. They had never heard anything like it. You know, we read through this, and and I know this is going to resonate with you. I know you're going to be able uh, to understand what I'm saying. When you read, when you are broken, and you go through and you read the words that Yeshua spoke, His love is, is dripping. He pours forth gentleness and compassion towards the people. You feel it when you read his words. I read these words. I've been through it. I study and study. And every time I get to Yeshua and when he opens his mouth, I want to clothe myself in his gentility. 
He was so gentle and so forgiving and so full of mercy. The things that came forth from him are beautiful. And you want to clothe yourself in these things. However, there's another side to Yeshua. There's another type, if you will, of speech pattern that proceeds forth from his mouth. And it isn't filled with compassion. And it isn't filled with mercy. It is filled with rebuke and contempt. Terrifying to hear the King of kings and the Lord of lords to speak like this. Terrifying to hear him talk like this. And it's interesting, he reserves this type of speech for a particular group of people. The religious leaders of the day. The scribes, the Pharisees. He rose up against them and vehemently opposed them. I'm going to tell you one of the uh, most harshest, most critical language found anywhere in the Bible is that of Yeshua speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. Men he calls serpents. Men he calls children of vipers. Who he calls fools. Who he calls blind guides. This isn't normal. This is not normal pattern, a speech pattern for Yeshua to speak. But he pulls this out. It's a completely polar opposite side of him. And he reserves this type of speech for these men. And here's the most terrifying component of it all. These men were revered. They were highly esteemed amongst his people. They exalted these men. Men who appeared outwardly to be, oh, they were very righteous. They appeared to be very spiritual. They clung to Torah. They taught Torah. But in all reality, they were completely wicked. In all reality, they were devils cloaking themselves with righteousness. This is who they were. And when you understand the effect that these men have on the flock, only then can you appreciate why Yeshua spoke the way he did to them. Only then can you truly appreciate it. Today we're going to look, we're going to begin to look at what Yeshua has to say to these kind of men. Uh, he gives us kind of, if you will, a, a character profile of what they look like, the, the behaviors that they portray, their methodology of how they approach Scripture, how they interpret it, and in turn teach it. And as we go through this, you're going to want to pay very, very close attention because the concepts and principles that are delivered within this vile rebuke, this harsh rebuke, are going to prove to be valuable as we get into today's topic. So with that said, we're going to begin in Matthew 23, verse 1. This is what we read. Then Yeshua spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. What does this mean? The scribes and Pharisees sitting in the seat of Moses. Very simply put, it refers to the fact that the scribes and Pharisees, you first ask yourself, well, let's first ask yourself, who is Moses? What did Moses do? If the scribes and Pharisees sat in his seat, what did Moses do? Did he or did he not instruct the people regarding the will of the Lord? Moses did. He went out and brought the commandments of God to the people. Not just that, but he was a judge. He sat and judged the people. 
This was Moses. So when Yeshua says, the scribes and Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses, what is he saying? The scribes and the Pharisees, they have assumed the power, the authority, and the influence of Moses. That is a very, very tall order. That is a very highly esteemed and honorable position to sit in. It's interesting, um, and this is just kind of as a side note, I threw this in at the last second. It's fascinating that archaeologists are combing through the land of Israel today, and they're digging up because there's so much history. I mean, it's the history we read about in this book. It's the greatest place in the world to be an archaeologist. And they're digging up and they're finding all these things from different generations. And what they're finding is a plethora of synagogues. They're everywhere from all these different generations. Do you know what they have found in these synagogues? They've actually found a seat of Moses. And the synagogue in Chorazin, this is an actual intact seat of Moses from around the time of Yeshua. And so they, they had this, and this was symbolic of what? They would put this in a synagogue, and here you could have the ruler of the synagogue or the, the Pharisee sit in. What is this? It's symbolic of the power and authority of Moshe. That's what it is. This is what Yeshua is referring to. The scribes and Pharisees, they sit in this seat. They have authority. Now, as we continue in verse 3, he goes on to say, Therefore, who, uh, whatever they tell you to observe... That observe and do, but do not do according to the works. For they say and do not do. I want to spend just a little bit of time addressing this passage because some people have taken the statement to mean that uh, we're supposed to be subject to the traditions of the elders. Or another way to say that is to the oral law, rabbinical law. Books such as the Mishnah. I, w- I had my Mishnah. I was going to bring it up here. The Mishnah. Then you have the other component, the Gemara. These are the two staples that fundamentally make up the Talmud. And I even heard an Orthodox Jewish rabbi criticizing a Jewish believer because he had not submitted to the traditions, to the oral law, but rather to Torah. He was criticizing him, and he said, Oh, believing Jew, if Yeshua was your rabbi, then you would listen to me because he has commanded you to listen to me, this Pharisaical Orthodox Jew, and what the rabbis had to say, the Orthodox law. And this is uh, commonly, this is actually quite common, and you get into the Messianic arena, uh, for people to interpret uh, this passage this way. In fact, I know people that have literally dedicated themselves to studying the Torah because of their interpretation of this very verse. Well, Yeshua told us to listen to the rabbis, to the Pharisees, and we need to do what they say so they dedicate themselves to Talmud. And I just want to say there's a beautiful stuff in the Mishnah. There's beautiful stuff in, in the Talmud, the Gemara. The, as, as you look in the commentaries, there's, there's beautiful stuff there. Um, but to regard it as law, to uphold it as law, I'm going to tell you this right now. I know for a fact that is not what Yeshua is commanding his disciples. Because I've read the whole book of Matthew. And what you will find in the book of Matthew is there are several examples before I even get here of his disciples not holding fast to the oral law, not holding fast to oral tradition. And they were ostracized 
by the Orthodox Jews of the day, by the religious leaders of the day. They condemned them. And did Yeshua come out and rebuke his disciples? He did not. He stood and opposed them. He stood to defend his disciples. I want to be very, very clear. This statement is not commanding that everyone has to submit to oral tradition, to Talmud, and the things of the rabbis, for example, Matthew 15, washing your hands before you eat. That's not what it's saying. Well, what is it saying? Well, you got context. Put it all together. How did he start out? The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moshe's seat. Then he goes on and say, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe do. In other words, when they speak according to Moshe, when they speak according to Torah, listen to them and do, but don't do as they do because they say and they do not do. This is what is being uh, translated. This is, this is what Yeshua is conveying to his disciples. And we continue on in verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear. And this is interesting. Right off the bat, Yeshua comes out to deliver a character profile. To show you the inside, the inner workings of how these men work. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. All the works they do to be seen by men. Download this. Pay close attention. Their motive for going out and doing things that appear to be righteous and holy. It is not a vertical faith. It is not for the Lord. It is to gain your attention. It's to get glory from you. They want the glory. It's a horizontal faith. The motive behind why I'm going to do what I do is so that you look at me. This is why we do that. He goes on. They make their phylacteries broad. They broaden their phylacteries. What are phylacteries? They're, they're also known as tefillin. And just to give you an idea of what they are, here's a picture of a gentleman with tefillin, with phylacteries. It's interesting. I mean, they find this, again, going back to archaeological finds, you'll find this stuff uh, going dating back to the time of Yeshua. Isn't that interesting? Because Yeshua actually addresses this. You broaden. You make your phylacteries obscenely large so that everyone can see. If this guy was to walk into a diner, what would you notice? He's got a huge leather box up here pointing out of his head. He's got a leather box down here. There's a specific way that they wrap the bands going up their left arm. Special blessing. And... I, I, I want to say this. This doing to fill in for an Orthodox Jew is very, very spiritual. It's very precious to them. I'm not out to discredit the act of what they do. That's not what this is. Don't, don't read into something that, that I'm not presenting here. It's very, very spiritual. You look at a Western wall, pull up Google, look at the pictures of the Western wall, you will find Orthodox Jews all over the place. In the morning, they, they go out and they, they'll, they'll, they'll be burying their phylacteries. They'll be burying their tefillin. It's very, very meaningful, very precious to them. And, and this tradition goes all the way back to Yeshua and before Yeshua. And we know that. Yeshua addresses it. Archaeological finds prove it. So here you have, so you have these huge boxes sticking out. And within these boxes, there's different parts of Torah stuck in there. Um, and, and the reason they do this is just briefly, I'll take you to Deuteronomy 6. We've got the Shema. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, 
and they shall be as frontlet bands between your eyes. See, they see that, and actually this is one of the parts of it that would go into this, uh, these leather boxes. They see this literally, and uh, they want to express it literally. Well, when we go to Yeshua saying that they brought in their phylacteries, Yeshua is showing you a motive. They're making them obscenely large as possible that they could possibly do so that every man could look at them and say, I'm spiritual. Because this is an outward profession of your piety. That's what it is. And Yeshua is coming against them that this is one of the things that you're concerned about. Making a show on the outward appearance. Now he goes on to say, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. I want to draw your attention to the word borders. Because when you go to the Greek on this, it is actually kraspidon. Well, that is the very word that is used, that when you go back to Numbers 15, and the children of Israel are commanded to make zitzit, when the Tanakh was translated into the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, that is the very word that is used, that's translated from Zitzit, they translate it to Kraspadon. In other words, they enlarge the borders of the garment, he's saying they enlarge their Zitzit. And I got a funny story, about 10, 12 years ago, there was a guy I knew, and I, I seen, you know, we were going to the synagogue, and I seen this guy outside of the synagogue at times, uh, during the week, and it was so funny, he had these cute little tiny zitzit, like little baby zitzit. But on Shabbat, he'd come in with zitzit that practically swept the floor. And this was the deal. All of a sudden, just to broaden and enlarge, just say, you know, he'd turn and this, you know, he'd go up on the table. Broaden his zitzit, broaden the borders of his garments so everybody could see just how spiritual and how righteous he was. Total expression of outward appearance total flesh one of these so this is this is one of the characteristics one of the things that we need to look at in regard to righteous devils where their focus lies moving on to verse six they love the best places at feasts the best seats in the synagogue now isn't that interesting because you know there were specific seats in the synagogue highly revered seats they desired to sit in it why you look at me i want the glory i want to be exalted look at me and my place of honor horizontal faith everything from me to you rather than saying no look to the rabbi everything that i do the motive of what i do should be directing you straight to yeshua Make the distinction. There's a difference here. And this is what Yeshua is calling them out on. They love the best places at the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Oh, teacher, teacher. They want to be fond over. She was going to go on to warn his disciples, do not fall into this trap. Do not fall into the trap of seeking glory for yourselves. This is what he says in verse 8. But you do not be called rabbi, which is in sense, you look at the word, it just means teacher. Do not seek to be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Mashiach, and you are all brethren. Now here's the second statement. Do not call anyone on earth your father. 
I want to bring some clarity to the table. This is not saying that you can't call your father, your biological father, your father. That's not what it's saying at all. Actually, it's interesting when you know about your Jewish roots and your Jewish heritage that the term Abba, father, was a common term of honor that was common to be placed upon the rabbis. And it was common for the Jewish people to give their children to the rabbis. It was better that they give them to God and that they learn the intense ways of God. The Apostle Paul is a perfect example who may have himself called his own rabbi Gamliel, which was his rabbi. He grew up at the feet of Gamliel, probably sent by his parents at six or seven years old to literally study at the feet of Gamliel. And it was common uh, to receive that title of father. And this is what he's talking about. So this is, both of these terms are explicit to rabbi, to, who are the rabbis? The Pharisees, the Pershim. The, 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 this, is, this is who the rabbis, so these first two statements pertain to the Pharisees. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And just to build upon this, if the Lord did not want you to honor your father by calling him Abba, by calling him Daddy, Uh, he would never have written the way he did the Ten Commandments. Honor your mother and father. He would have said, honor uh, the name of of the biological one who gave you life, Bob, George, Fred. Okay, so this is not what he is saying. Um, One is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, kathagetes in the Hebrew, Kathagetes, in modern Greek, I'm sorry, in Greek, the term is actually used as professor. It's a term reserved to to express a professor. And this is a term that is applying, that Yeshua, it implies that he's dealing with the scribes. Well, that's how he started the whole passage off. Scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. These first two statements are direct statements to the Pharisees, and now he goes on to the scribes. Do not be called Kathagetes, teachers, for one is your teacher, the Mashiach. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever, humbles, or whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Understand something. If you, if you want to truly come away with the core of what Yeshua is conveying, And Matthew 23, and everywhere else for that matter, it's this principle. Humble yourselves. Bring yourselves low. It's his will. That is what this rabbi is looking for in you, in me, to humble ourselves. What's the benefit of that? We're going to be exalted. We're going to be lifted up. But it won't be you. It won't be me. It'll be the chief rabbi, the chief shepherd, Yeshua. He will lift you up. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's why you've heard me say, when I see a man enveloped, embracing pride in his life, I don't need to be a prophet to tell you what is going to happen to that man. I know what is coming. The horses are pride, and the cart is shame. If I see the horses, I know the cart's coming. 
If I see a man embracing pride in their life, I know what is coming. This man is in for it. Shame is going to come upon him. It's going to be the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord, the word of the Lord will see to it. The word of the Lord is true. And I say this to put fear into you. Do not embrace pride. Pride makes us do the stupidest things, ungodly things. One of which is what Yeshua is capitalizing on here. It seeks to bring glory to itself. It desires it. The flesh craves it. It wants it. Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone proud in heart is abomination to the Lord. You want to know why Yeshua is speaking with such contempt, vile rebuke against these men? They're abominable. They've embraced pride. They want the glory. They want the honor. He hates it. They are an abomination to them. Think about that when you catch yourself falling into pride. I don't want to be abominable in the eyes of Yeshua. I want to be beloved. And when I pray, I want him to hear my prayers. Now, as we continue, you're going to see that Yeshua goes for the jugular, delivers a crippling blow to these religious devils. Moving on to verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites in the Greek. Do you know that this was a common term to describe a man who assumed a role in a play? He assumed the role of a character in a play. That's what the term relates to. That's what it's referring to, Hippocrates. He's saying, you actors, you pretenders, you're pretending to play a character. You are not. It's an amazing statement. Hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. This is the deadly influence that the religious devils can and will have on Yeshua's church. Understand something. Righteous devils harvest on the souls of men. They claim to take you in the path of righteousness. They claim to bring you into the light. And they lead you into utter darkness. Into total deception. I'm going to warn you now, do not associate with religious devils. Get as far away from them as you can. These kind of men, they will not spare you. They will not spare you. Look at the words of Paul. I love this, one of my favorite passages. I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, within the community, within the body. Men among yourselves will rise up speaking perverse things. Why? To draw away disciples after themselves. They're looking to be rabbis. You follow me. Horizontal faith. Rather than, no, no, no. You have a rabbi. His name is Yeshua rather than dedicating everything that you do and your works to bringing people to the feet of Yeshua. Man gets caught up in man. They get caught up in the flesh and you come to me. You listen to me. I have something to impart to you. Let me lord over you. Let me be your master. We love that master-servant relationship when we're the masters. 
Watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. What kept Paul up at night, what made him lose sleep, was the power, the influence of these dark ones coming in, placating as righteous, pretending to be righteous, clothing themselves in holiness. Moving to verse 14. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you actors, for you devour katastheo in the Greek, literally means to eat all the way down, to consume all the way down. You devour widows' houses. Isn't that interesting? Something I can tell you from observing for over 15 years, observing how righteous devils work. They prey upon the weak. They prey upon the weak. They cannot stand next to the strong, to those who are rooted and grounded in the name of Yeshua, who have given their lives to them. They cannot stand because they do not submit to them. They don't cater to their ideologies, to their doctrines, to their system and their way of things. They prey upon the weak. And they do not spare them. They do not spare them. For a pretense, make long prayers. My goodness, what is the point of praying if I'm praying to impress you? That's horizontal faith. If you think I've ever come up here to pray and and, and just considering, oh, how are these guys going to perceive my prayer and the expectations is they think I'm holy so I've got to say specific things in a specific way so that they're pacified and they think I'm still holy God forbid that I or you fall into such a deal it's rambling on in prayer for the sake of impressing you horizontal faith now certainly uh, we all know Craig Craig delivers some long prayers. There is a difference. When Craig prays, you're completely gone. He loses himself in the Lord. And you can feel it and you can tell. There's a difference. So just because a man prays a long prayer, it doesn't mean he falls into this camp. Use spiritual wisdom. There are men that fear God that when they all of a sudden they lock in and they're gone. They shut you out and they're just praying to the Lord. That is authentic. You want what is real. You don't want what is flesh. You want what is spirit. It bears fruit. Amen? Therefore, they will receive a greater condemnation. Of course they will. They're going to receive a greater condemnation. Everything they did under the guise of holiness was to receive glory. We go on to verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Do not be deceived in thinking that these men, religious devils, are not active. They are very active, and they are very willing. They are willing to travel land and sea for one, so that they gain a disciple. And how's that How's that work out? Become twice as much a son of hell as they are. Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. Which is greater, the gold? 
or the temple that sanctifies the gold. Verse 18. And whoever swears by the altar, oh, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? This is one of the most critical components that you pick out of all of what we're covering in Matthew 23. This is a characteristic that you need to understand. This is a type of behavior that righteous devils display. What do they do? They redirect the focus ever so slightly. Just one degree. They remove the focus and emphasis of what God has placed upon it. And they redirect it to an emphasis and focus of what they feel should be emphasized. This is scary stuff. When you bring this into real life, this gets really scary. Righteous devils are notorious for redirecting the focus. And make no mistake, this is what they do with the Torah. This is what they do with the Word of God. Rather than instruct you, they distract you. Rather than equip you, they are going to disarm you. Rather than edify you, they will subvert you. Rather than build you up, they will tear you down. So what they do, all under the guise of righteousness. Truly it is as Yeshua said. If it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Let me give you some real life examples of this to help you appreciate biblical examples that we have. And I could give many, and I could give many today, but I'm just going to give you a couple here because I want to show you how cunning the evil one is. Matthew 26 Verse 6, and when Yeshua was in Bethany at the house of Shimon the leper, a woman, now I want you to understand, because we have four Gospels, not one, uh, we get to pick parts out of one that gives us information that sometimes the other doesn't cover. This woman, who is just ambi- ambiguous, uh, ambiguous uh, here, uh, it is actually Mary, Martha's sister. And this is going to come into play. Mary came to him, having an alabaster Uh, alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table now when you go to read john's version she didn't just pour it on his head she poured it on his feet she wept and she wiped the tears that wiped his feet with her hair this is awesome what she is doing here and keep in mind it was probably her life savings costly fragrant oil this was probably all she had and she gave it to Yeshua. We continue in verse 8. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant. I want to be very clear. When you go to John, John does something pretty important. He identifies one who rose up and cried foul and was indignant. And that is Judas Iscariot. The perfect picture the prototype of what a religious devil is. Do not forget that he traveled with Yeshua. He went out in Yeshua's ministry doing what? Preaching the kingdom of God. He taught Yeshua as the Messiah. He was with him. And yet, he is a righteous devil. 
And here's a perfect example. Judas Iscariot rises up, and who knows? We don't know because it's not specified. Maybe some of the other disciples, when Judas rose up and said, Why this waste? Maybe some of the other disciples says, He's got a point. I don't know. See, but this is how it happens with religious devils. They rise up, they're outspoken, and they carry people with them. He might have a point. Look at what he says here. Why this waste for this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Do you know what Judas Iscariot is doing here? He is teaching Torah. It is in the Torah. We are commanded to care for the poor. Read Deuteronomy 15. That is Torah. What is his concern? Surely appears to be the righteousness in Torah and doing righteousness. This is his concern. You see how a righteous devil can work one degree. They don't stop preaching Yeshua. They don't stop preaching Jesus. They don't stop preaching Torah. They teach it. Twist it with just a tiny bit of perversion. It's the old uh, proverbial adage, you don't need to take the whole bottle of Sinai. You just need a little bit, and it's going to get the job done. And here, this is what he's doing. Well, is this righteousness? Is this Torah? Because he just stepped up and taught Torah. We're supposed to be concerned for the poor. Verse 10, when Yeshua was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. You have the poor with you always. It's just interesting. Yeshua is so brilliant. Uh, that's a dumb moment. But he's so brilliant. You have the poor with you always. Isn't it fascinating? Yeshua goes back to the very chapter that proclaims we're supposed to take care of the poor. And in that chapter, in Deuteronomy 15, it says, The poor will never cease from the land. And so it's his subtle little way. Oh, I know what the Torah says. Here he says, you have the poor with you always. He's teaching Torah. This is the beautiful thing about Yeshua. He always goes back. But me, you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Mary had wisdom. Mary understood the spirit of Torah. She understood what was truly holy and within context. And because she adhered to it, because she gave everything she had to Yeshua, to this very day she is honored. But what's fascinating, within the same story, who receives dishonor, who receives shame? The righteous devil, Judas Iscariot. The very one who cried, foul. One of the things that you will notice that righteous devils will do when they come on the scene, they will condemn the innocent. Those who really are seen as righteous and humble before Yeshua. They will falsely condemn the righteous. Look out for it. It's prevalent in the world today. Let me give you another example. When in Matthew 12, Yeshua's disciples, they go out into the grain field and they're picking heads of grain to eat. Well, they're doing this on the Shabbat. Well, what happens? 
the religious devils come in and condemn them. You do not do what is written in Torah. Why do your disciples do what is not lawful? What are they doing? They're doing what they always do. They condemn the innocent. So what happens in Matthew 12? Look at how Yeshua responds. Have you not read in the law? Have you not read in Torah? Where does Yeshua go? He takes them back to Torah. He doesn't say it's done away with. He takes them back to it. And the other thing is, is this is a crushing blow. Talk about humbling somebody. What were the Pharisees notorious for? They were, they were known for knowing the Torah. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. We're supposed to be the experts in Torah. And he asked them, have you not read in the law? <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. That on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are, look at the term he uses, they're blameless. They are blameless. And it is no... I mean, it's no mystery. The priests work twice as hard on Shabbat. The animal sacrifice is doubled. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, just in case you didn't pick up on uh, what he's doing here and humbling them, he says it again. If you had actually known what this means, if you'd actually know what Scripture is, you don't understand Scripture. But what's he do this time? He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Do you know what he's quoting? He's quoting the prophets. In a brilliant manner, he just took them from the Torah to the prophets, the whole Hebrew Bible, and he just told them, you don't know any of it. It's brilliant. And he quotes Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Look at this. You would not have condemned the guiltless. They wouldn't have condemned the innocent if they actually knew what Scripture said. In other words, if they actually knew what the Lord spoke and understand his words. I'm going to tell you something. The flesh cannot interpret that which is of the Spirit. It will not happen. It can impersonate it. It will pervert it. But it cannot interpret it. I could give you countless examples of this type of behavior taking place in Scripture and out of Scripture But I'm just going to give you one more example. And this is the whole reason we're here today. This is the whole point of this message. It's a perfect example of distorting Torah for the sake of the flesh. For the sake of feeding the desires of the flesh. And what am I referring to? You ready for this? Polygamy. Bet you weren't expecting that. Polygamy. With this massive explosion, this revival of believers in Yeshua returning to their Jewish roots, returning to the Torah, Satan is fit to be tied. He is enraged with those who would call upon the name of Yeshua and actually have the audacity to keep his commandments, to study his Torah. Therefore, he has sent out his minions to destroy this pure move of God. And dissenters are rising up. Men are rising up, proclaiming to be teachers of the law, as Paul notes, understanding neither the things that they say nor the things that they affirm. And they're redirecting the focus just a degree, and they're perverting the truth of God's Word. A perfect example of this is men who come into Torah, they begin to embrace the, the concept the principle of polygamy. 
Simply because they see it in Torah, therefore they see it, uh, and, 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 and therefore they see it's justified. I mean, all these righteous men had multiple wives. Abraham, did he not have multiple wives? What about his son or grandson Jacob, Yaakov? Four wives. What about King David, righteous man of God, multiple wives? What about his son? Wives beyond number. Thousand. A thousand wives, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Sure seems when you look at Scripture, it's promoting polygamy because all these righteous men are embracing it. Therefore, we have dissenters out there teaching polygamy through the basis of Torah. It's a God-given right to man. We should have multiple wives. The Torah promotes it. I want to begin by stating just because you find something in Torah, just because you read about a particular group of circumstances within the Torah, it doesn't mean that what we read or what we think we are reading was God's will for our lives. Let me give you a perfect example of what I'm talking about. In the 24th chapter of Deuteronomy, this is a famous chapter. The chapter is all about divorce. And it talks about uh, the parameters and, and things that are right and things that are wrong, that if a wife leaves a man, she marries another man, she can't leave that man and come back to her first husband. It is an abomination. But right off the bat, in verse 1, it talks about the proper way to give your wife a divorce. It requires a certificate of divorce. You need to have a certificate of divorce. Let me ask you a question. Because of Deuteronomy 24, does that mean God is encouraging divorce? It's in the Torah. Does that mean he's encouraging divorce, that this is Torah-based and we're totally fine? Well, guess what? This has been debated for thousands of years. To what degree, to what interpretation? There are all sorts of interpretation that men have extrapolated out of this passage. It's interesting. I want to show you what some of these interpretations are. And these are rabbinic authorities. The school of Shammai say, a man may not divorce his wife unless he finds in her a matter of lewdness, as it says, if he finds in her an unseemly thing. In other words, he's quoting Deuteronomy 24 here. Unless he finds in her, the actual Hebrew is erva. When you look at this and you even do a word study on it, it's talking explicitly about fornication, about adultery. This is, this is what it's talking about. But men have extrapolated all sorts of interesting interpretations of God's word. And they're not all right. God had a purpose in speaking. It's direct. It hits the mark. I mean, that's what Torah means. You know what Torah literally means? We could say it's the will of God and that's true. and all these. It means to shoot. The concept of hitting the bullseye. That's what Torah is, is to shoot. Well, let me show you what Hillel said. Even if she burnt his food, as it says, if he finds in her an unseemly thing, isn't that interesting? He quotes the very same passage Shammai quotes, but says, no, no, no. What Torah is instructing or Torah is promoting that. Listen, wives, you burn my toast, you're gone. Aren't you glad Hillel is not the rabbi here? I mean, how many of us would still be married? <laughs> my wife just fried my eggs the other day. Overcooked them. There's no yolk left. But 
school of Hillel. That's, honey, are you here today? Uh, you are here. I forgot that. It just started to click. I don't think she's teaching today. It's a good thing my rabbi, honey, is Yeshua. But that didn't stop there. Rabbi Akiva, who proclaimed Bar Kokhba was the Mashiach, even if he found one more beautiful than she, as it says, if she, found, if she should not find favor in his eyes. All quoting the exact same passage, all coming with unbelievably different interpretations. I mean, this is amazing. What is my point in showing you this? Because this is all, this is, this, you need to have this, you need to be able to understand this in your heart. To be able to reconcile these things. My point is the Torah doesn't promote divorce when you look at the truth of it. It doesn't promote divorce any more than it promotes polygamy. Let me offer some evidence to support this statement. And there's no better place to begin than at uh, the beginning. Going back to Genesis. Let's go back here. Genesis 2.21 And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Moving on to verse 23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Why? Because she was taken out of a man. In the Hebrew, ish ve'haisha. A woman and the man. Uh, uh, the man and the woman. This is what it is. Isha. The, the, the root of that is man. But she's called Isha because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Singular. Wife in the singular. You want, you can go to the Hebrew, you can see this, but it, it, it goes past that because start to look at how, how does the New Testament interpret this? When you actually go to Matthew 19, and I didn't put it up here, it says, and be uh, joined to his wife, and how, it's, how Yeshua quotes it in Matthew, and the two, not the four, not the five, not the six, the two shall become one flesh. This is God's intent for marriage. One man, one woman. However, your self-proclaimed Torah scholars will be quick to remind you, well, Daniel, you're, you're conveniently overlooking all the things that we read about that are in the Torah that pertain to uh, polygamy. What about Abraham? And this narrative that I'm about to share with you, this really exists, okay, out there. And hopefully you haven't heard it. What about Abraham, Daniel? Abraham was a righteous man of God, was he not? Yes, he was a righteous man of God. Okay? And we're supposed to be children of Abraham. And the works that Abraham did, we should do. Abraham multi had multiple wives. What do you mean we shouldn't have multiple wives? What do you mean Torah doesn't promote polygamy? Fair enough. Let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at Abraham's situation and see why he had multiple wives. Going back early on in the book of Genesis, we find Sarah. She's barren. She has no children. And like most wives, right, you almost could say any wife, 
She desired children. It's in a woman's DNA. What's in a woman's DNA is to procreate, to have children. Because this is what we remember. Be fruitful and multiply. It's in our DNA to do this. Sarah wanted a child. And she was so desperate to get one. She went to great lengths. And what did she do? She gave her maidservant, Hagar, into the embrace of her husband. Her husband. She gave Hagar into his embrace because she wanted the child. Let me ask you something. How did that work out? Two words. Pretty horrible. (laughs) Proof of this? Let's take a look at this. Then Sarai said to Abraham, My wrong be upon you. See, here's all the joy Sarah thought she was going to have in accomplishing and getting this child turned to utter sorrow when Hagar conceived. Total sorrow. And what does Sarah say to Abraham? My wrong be upon you. Do you know what that word in the Hebrew is for wrong? Because you just can't appreciate it to the degree that you will when I tell you what that Hebrew word is. That Hebrew word is Hamas. And do you know where we find that Hebrew word first? We find it earlier than this. This is the very term that is utilized to describe the world and its environment in the days of Noah and the reason God brought destruction upon this earth was because of Hamas. Feel the weight of Sarah's statement. She says, my Hamas, my sin, this violence that I have done, she points to Abraham. It's on you, Abraham. How can she say that? How can she come out and say, this wrong be upon you? Because Abraham embraced her. He embraced her. She says, I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in his eyes. The Lord judged between me and you. That is a scary statement. The Lord be judged between me and you. Does this situation sound like marital bliss? I mean, to anybody. Does this sound like God's ultimate will for marriage? No. Sarah knew it. Abraham quickly found out thereafter. Just because we read that Abraham had multiple wives, and yes, listen to my confession, Abraham was a righteous man before God. And through him came the sand, which is by the seashore, and multitude of people, the Lord's people. But just because we read about a particular set of circumstances doesn't mean that that's what Torah is promoting. That's what God's promoting. Let me further build upon this. Just embrace this principle for a second. Since we're talking about Abraham, did you know that Abraham had married his sister? He married, I mean, his literal sister. If I was to follow some of this logic to its conclusion, well then, should we start marrying our sisters? I I caution you not to do that. Leviticus 20, verse 17. Oh, here, Genesis 20. This is proof that Sarah is Abraham's sister. But indeed, Sarah is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father. That's your proof. But now let me take you to Torah and what God's will for our life is. If a man takes his sister, his father's daughter. This is specifically talking about 
Abraham and Sarah's situation. Or his mother's daughter and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, meaning he's going to take her as wife. It is a wicked thing and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. Understand, when you approach Torah, you better do so carefully with a humble spirit seeking the instruction of the Lord. Look at the totality of the picture. Stop looking at snapshots to feed your flesh and to justify your actions. Because they're going to be called into account for doing that. I promise you. A good analogy to use is when I was a young man, strapping young lad, probably 8, 9, 10, used to get together with my friends. And what do boys do at that age? We run around, well, not so much now in our PC culture, we ran around with guns going to war. That's what we did. It was fun. We were in a battle. It's always a battle. You're a young man. You are battling. You are warring. You're shooting people in the face. It's absolutely fun. This is the greatest thing ever. And if you have sons that are 8, 9, 10 years old, you know what I'm talking about. There's something in a man that, that that's what they do. Listen to me, parents. Give that kid who's out there pretending and going to war, give him a live firearm. And tell me what is going to happen. Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to die. Because that man does not know how to handle that weapon. Give another man, a respectable police officer, who has been trained how to use that same firearm, and what will he do? He will go out and save people's lives. That's what he'll do with it. The Torah is a weapon. And you do not want this weapon in the hands of little boys pretending, going back to that hypocrite statement, pretending, fighting a war. You don't want it in their hands because they're going to kill somebody. They're going to take somebody out. They're going to pervert it. They don't know how to handle the weapon. Be very, very careful. Polygamy... This, this whole concept of polygamy and what I hear, what's coming to my ears is absolutely insane. What about Jacob? Jacob had four wives. But I ask you, how did that go? Two words. Pretty horrible. Does this, is this the model for marriage? Is this what God had intended? Well, let's take a look at it. Genesis 29:31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, Scriptural fact, Leah was unloved. Leah was Jacob's first wife. And what did the Lord do? The Lord had compassion on her because he saw that her husband did not love her. Moving on, look at how this goes down. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes. Reuben was Leah's firstborn. And found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. So Rachel, the other wife that came after Leah, she goes up to Leah, I want some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Look at what she says. She is crushed. She feels abandoned by her husband. And she is pointing the finger at her sister. 
You have taken him from me. Would you also take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel, this is Jacob's second wife, said, Oh, therefore he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. Are you kidding me? Is this marital bliss, is this what God had in mind in the garden? That one wife is to pimp out her husband so she can get mandrakes? I mean, this, it's beyond silly. Sometimes when people talk, it scares me. This is not what God had intended. Leah was unloved. What do we know about marriage? God's intent for marriage. Man has been commanded to love his wife as Yeshua loved the church. Look at this. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Mashiach has loved the church and gave himself for her. That is God's intent for marriage. We are to model marriage after the relationship of the church with Yeshua. That's how marriage is to be modeled. Anything less is a failure in your marriage. Men, pay close attention. You need to behave like Yeshua, and you need to love your wives as Yeshua has loved us. That is biblical marriage. That is marital bliss. That is godliness. That is what God intended. Just look at what Paul goes on to say. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, in his flesh, and of his bones. Oh, what does Paul do to teach the Ephesians what marriage is supposed to look like from God's point of view? He goes back to the garden. Isn't that interesting? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two, not the three, four, five, six, seven, the two shall become one flesh. Let me take this a step further. Taking you further into the New Testament, something pertaining to polygamy. As we get to the pastoral epistles, uh, we get to 1 Timothy and we get to chapter 3. And the whole thing, Paul articulates the requirements, the characteristics of what it will take for a man to be a shepherd over the church, for a man to be an elder, for him to be a judge, for him to be a watchman. He goes through the characteristics of what they need to possess. They need to meet this criteria. What is the first thing that is mentioned? Well, let's look at this. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, that's episcopate, it's the same thing. It's used uh, interchangeably with, uh, with uh, presbyteros. In other words, he's talking about an elder. He's talking about a shepherd of a church. If a man desires the position of an elder, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Temperate, sober mind, good behavior, hospital, able to teach. Do you realize that if a man had more than one wife, that person was rendered illegitimate as a shepherd of the church? He is not eligible to lead or instruct God's people. Let me ask you a question. What do we know about the instructors, about the elders that were to lord over the church? What do we know about them? They were to lead by example. 
so that the people that were watching them would emulate them. And what is the requirement? He's a husband of one wife. Does this sound like polygamy is God's will? It's Torah-based theology that God wants for us? I want to bring one more person to the table. King Solomon. Again, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Was Solomon a man of God? No question about it. He's one of the most prolific messianic imageries we have. This beautiful character. Incredible man. The fact that he increased wives doesn't promote polygamy because he did it against God's judgment. I want to be very clear on that. Solomon did what was against Torah. Did you know that? Did you know the Torah prohibits a king from multiplying wives for himself? Deuteronomy 17, verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. It's right within Torah. The fact that Solomon didn't do it doesn't mean that Torah is promoting polygamy. We're not supposed to multiply wives. Why? Why have the kings been commanded, don't you dare multiply wives? They will turn your heart away from the Lord. So you start adding all these wives. Let me ask you, men, what are you feeding? You are feeding your flesh. That's what you're feeding. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You need to feed your spirit with that which is spiritual. It can turn you from the Lord. And did it turn Solomon from the Lord? Yes, it did. The very warning that he got. So pay attention here, people. When the Lord says something, he says, I'm commanding you to do this, but if you don't do it, this is going to happen. Take it to the bank. It's going to happen. It's exactly what happened to Solomon. He fell away from the Lord, kingdom divided. You know, one thing that I have learned about studying the Torah and drawing out the Torah, approaching Yeshua with humility, weeping, fasting, when you, when you approach this, is that Torah never could you possibly truly understand what God is conveying in the flesh. Torah is about sacrifice. If I'm interpreting the Torah, if I'm reading principles and concepts out of here and I want to understand them, I promise you, if that concept is catering to the will of your flesh, you're not reading it right. But if it's demanding sacrifice, you're, you're, most likely you're interpreting exactly how God intended because Torah commands sacrifice. Destruction of self, destruction of flesh, destruction of your desires. Matthew 16, 24. We're going to close with this one. Then Yeshua said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Total sacrifice. This is Torah. You think you understand Torah? This concept, this principle should be resonating through your heart as you read and flip through the pages of Torah. It's about sacrifice. The whole ideology of utilizing the Torah to promote your flesh is the most abominable and crass thing you could do. Don't do it. 
Don't say, thus says the Lord. I, I've told it before. I heard a gentleman in my old uh, community growing up. And this kid came next to me and he's like, you know what? The Lord told me to marry this girl. So I'm going to go tell her, the Lord told me to marry you. He starts taking the Lord's name in vain. The Lord didn't tell him nothing to get his way. And so many men approach the word of God looking to feed their flesh, looking to justify their actions, to render you in totally to nothing, to render you not. I mean, this is what's happening. Don't get caught up on it. Beware. Beware how you approach Torah. Beware of your surroundings. And beware, I'm going to say it again, of who you're listening to.